You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, You guys, there's a, a short story written by a guy named O. Henry. It tells the tale of two women, Sue and Johnsy. Amazing name, Johnsy. And they met in a restaurant in the late 1800s in New York City. They were both artists, so they hit it off right away. They loved painting, and they had a ton of overlapping interests. And when you hear artists in New York City, you also can assume that they weren't very wealthy. And so in the story, they say, hey, we're really hitting it off. We're good friends. Why don't we move in together and save some money, right? We can pay for rents together. We can paint together, and we can be inspired together. And it works out great for them to start. It's in the spring when they meet, and they go through the next few months. It's just a beautiful friendship that blossoms. They inspire one another in their art. But then winter comes along, and John Z falls sick. The doctors come to their home, and they diagnose her with pneumonia, which in any time and place is not a great diagnosis, but particularly in the 1800s in cold New York, not a great diagnosis. And John Z, when she hears this, starts to slip into depression. She doesn't feel like she has what it takes to fight this disease, and she's slowly waning. And Sue doesn't like to see her friends that way. And so Sue moves John Z's bed as close as it can get to the window on their third-story apartment so that she can see outside and Maybe that would inspire her. There's a tree not far from their apartment. Maybe that could spark some life in her. And one day, Sue is making dinner for the both of them. The sun is starting to set, but it's still light outside. And she hears John Z in the other room start counting down at weird random intervals. She hears nine, and then a few minutes later, eight. A few minutes later, seven. And Sue comes into the room. She asks John Z, what, what are you doing? And John Z points out the window, and she says, I'm looking at that tree and the leaves that are falling and counting them down. And when the last one goes, I think I'll go too. And Sue is distraught. She loves her friend. She says, no, you have to stick around. You have to fight. You just need rest. You just need food. You just need a drink. That will recuperate you. But John Z just keeps counting. And Sue doesn't know what to do. So she, well, runs to her neighbor. His name's Behrman. He lives on the first story of their apartment building. And he's also an artist if you can call him that. He wasn't very talented in his life. He always said that he was going to paint his masterpiece, but he never quite did it. He never quite finished it. And his work was never really celebrated. And so to drown his feeling of failure in his life, he often drank. And he committed himself to this masterpiece pursuit. He said, one day I'm going to paint my masterpiece. And that was the obsession of his life. And so Sue approaches Behrman. She doesn't know where else to go. And she says, hey, John Z is sick. She's counting down the leaves. It seems like she's going to go soon. What should I do? And Behrman doesn't have a whole lot of advice to give her. He's like, look, I, I can't really bother myself with this right now. I'm working on my masterpiece. And Sue goes back to her apartment quite discouraged that evening. And then a storm comes that night, a huge storm, wind and rain. It's freezing cold. It's battering against their window. And In that evening, John Z tells Sue, this is probably the night that the last leaf will fall. It's probably going to be tomorrow. And so the next morning, when they wake up, as soon as the sun peeks over the horizon, Sue rushes to the window to see, and sure enough, there's one leaf, one leaf hanging on to this tree. And John Z sees that and says, well, this is probably the day it falls. But it didn't fall that day, or the next day, or the next day. It kept hanging on. 
And John Z eventually said, well, if that leaf can hang on, I think I can too. She started to improve. Over the next few days, she was remarkably better. The doctors came and said, if she keeps resting, she's going to be completely healed. And naturally, they're both excited about this. But as the doctor's about to leave, he mentions something in passing to Sue that strikes her. He mentions that he's actually going to be visiting a neighbor of theirs, a guy named Behrman. He was found in their apartment complex the night of the storm. He was soaked in water. He was laying, passed out. He had paint on his hands, red and yellow and green paint. They say he's come down with pneumonia, and he's old and weak and not particularly healthy. He's probably not going to make it. They're going to have to move him to the hospital soon. And as the doctor left, Sue put the pieces together. On that cold and stormy night, when the last leaf had fallen, Behrman went out into the storm and painted a leaf on the tree so that John Z could see it the next day. And he died from pneumonia, but he painted his masterpiece, a masterpiece that stuck around for John Z and Sue to be inspired by for the rest of their life. As soon as he stopped focusing on his own self-creation, and as soon as he gave himself away to the other, he painted his masterpiece. What's your masterpiece? That's the question that the last leaf, the short story, is trying to ask us. The question that drives many of us. What is my life going to mean? What am I going to leave behind for people? What does it mean to have a true, lasting, significant life? And in the middle of this sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, looking at the core of this Christian faith, the very center of our story, we get to this fascinating statement. The communion of the saints. We, as Christians, affirm the communion of the saints. And that phrase is a reminder to us that there are masterpieces all around us and masterpieces that date back thousands of years that inspire us today. This is a story of the masterpiece of Christian history that we remind ourselves every week when we say this creed. So let's dig into the scriptures and see the masterpiece that's been created for us throughout church history. If you have a Bible, turn in it with me uh, to the book of Hebrews. This is near the backs of your Bibles if you're flipping there. I'm going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 12. So if you're flipping through it, look for the big number 12. Uh, we're going to have the words behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along there. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you think that your life will really change the course of things? Do you think that your life will really change the course of things? That's a question that's asked of the protagonist in one of my favorite movies. It's called A Hidden Light. It came out in 2019. It's one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. I've actually got some stills from the movie just so you guys can see it here. Uh, they're incredibly put together. They're like paintings in every shot. And it tells the story of a guy named Franz Jagerstatter. It's a true story. He was a conscientious objector in World War II. Because he followed Jesus, he said, I, I can't serve in the Nazi regime. I can't commit to it. And that was in a world, by the way, where the church was telling him to serve the Nazis. 
the church had gotten in bed with the government in that regime. That's actually one of the major reasons the Nazis were able to do what they were able to do, because the church told people to partner with them. He didn't listen, because he knew Jesus. He said, this is not of Jesus. This sort of hatred and evil is anti-Christ. And he couldn't in good conscience serve in that sort of regime. And he was lambasted, condemned by everyone in his neighborhood for doing that. Eventually, he was taken in by the Nazis and killed for his commitment to Jesus. And near the end of his life, when he's in a prison camp, there's a Nazi soldier that asks him that question. Do you really think your life, your defiance, can change the course of things? And here's what I love about that movie. It actually answers the question. Its existence answers that question that the Nazi asks him. See, the small and hidden and profound life of a man who was killed because he loved Jesus and loved his neighbors, it's actually changed the course of things. It was a masterpiece of a life that's been made into a masterpiece of a movie that now has affected millions of people. Franz had no idea when he did that what he was actually going to be able to do in the course of things. But he committed himself to these small, profound acts of faithfulness, and it has changed lives. Franz literally gave his life to serve Christ, and now he has eternal life. Not just himself with Christ, which is true right now, but he also has eternal life because he lives on for us. He keeps living on. When we as Christians affirm the communion of the saints in the creed, we're affirming the eternity of Franz's story and the eternity of billions of other Christians who have lived faithful lives of following Jesus. We're saying that we, as a community, participate in thousands of years of saints who have followed Jesus. That we, right now, are gathering together with them, and that eventually we gather with them in eternity. We're affirming, as the author of Hebrews does, that we aren't alone in this faith. We're united together. There's a grand cosmic family that spans culture, that spans language. We talked about this last week, the Holy Catholic Church, right? It spans across all cultures at all times and in all places. This is the masterpiece that God has painted through his people that inspires us today. And there are three ways, I think, in Hebrews that we see this masterpiece revealed to us. We see it's a masterpiece of community. We see it's a masterpiece of encouragement to us. And we see it's a masterpiece of clarity. First, masterpiece of community. Right away in verse 1, we hear the authors use an interesting phrase to describe this communion of saints. They call them a cloud of witnesses. It's a really fascinating thing, right? Imagine being surrounded by a cloud of people. It's just constantly around you. He actually has just gotten done in chapter 11 overviewing the whole of the scriptural narrative, and he tells the stories of many of the heroes of the faith that we know from these pages. People like Noah and Abraham. Sarah and Moses and Rahab and David. He goes on and on saying that those people now make up a community that surrounds us as faithful followers of God right now. So when we use the word saints, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this amazing community of people. And I know that when we hear that and when we hear some of those names in the scriptures, we automatically think of very highly like esteemed people, right? Very holy people. Maybe a halo around their head. Maybe a painting where they have like weird hand gestures that they make, right? Because that's what saints do in some of our paintings, right? We think of highly elevated people. We don't think of ourselves like saints. But that's actually not the picture of saints that we get in the scriptures. The word that we translate to saints in English, it's used 63 times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, it just describes Christians. Normal, everyday Christians. Not special ones, not those who have particularly great testimonies, not those who are great and set higher above other 
people, Christians are saints. That's what happens when we follow Jesus, which means you can be a saint if you collect garbage, you can be a saint if you brew coffee, and you can be a saint if you cure cancer. You're not a saint because of what you do. You're a saint because Jesus has called you into a new sort of life that you live wherever you are. That's what it means to be a saint. And that means that every single one of us right now is surrounded by clouds of saints. You're in this room right now because of saints who've been faithful to Jesus. Who's part of your cloud? Teachers? Doctors? Pastors? Parents? Artists? Dead and gone or living today? Who's part of your communion of saints? I know who's a part of mine. I look around this room right now and I see them. I see people like Jordan Hoyt, who spends hours upon hours in his week loving the marginalized and the oppressed as Jesus did. He commits his life to them. I see people like Reagan Beck, who reckons deeply with the calling of God in her life, who prays and reads and longs for God to use her life in powerful ways so that others might experience his love and grace. I see people like Adam McAnally. Happy Father's Day. Adam McAnally, who is a public servant. He does things that none of you will really realize, and sometimes when he starts to talk about them, you're like, that's beyond my head to comprehend. He makes sure that people in the state of Arizona have essential things to live. He makes major decisions for the entire state of Arizona. That man loves others and loves Jesus. He's a saint. And this whole communion right here, I could keep going. I know all your faces. I know your stories. This whole communion right now, gathered together, is surrounded by a communion that has come before us, surrounded by a cloud of witnesses that support us, this amazing community. That means that every time we gather, friends, here on Sunday mornings, across the city in our community groups, serving the poor and the needy in our neighborhood, every time we do that, we are accompanied by people who have come before us. We are inspired by them. Their eternal lives continue to move us today, and eventually we get to participate with them face to face. It's an amazing thing, this community that we talk about as Christians. It helps us fight some of the ugly assumptions of our world. For instance, our world tends to assume that if you want true lasting life, if you want a masterpiece of a life, it comes through individualism. It comes through self-defining. So you define your career, you define your identity, you define whatever you need to define for yourself so that you can live your masterpiece. But guys, that's actually not the freedom that we think it is. Self-defining and self-reliance is often actually crippling. That's why in the most self-reliant society that we've ever seen in U.S. history, the most individualistic society, we're more depressed, more anxious, and more relationally isolated than we've ever been. Because individualism isn't the masterpiece we're made to paint, we're made for community. We're designed to do life alongside one another. And the communion of the saints is a reminder to us that that exists, that that community is here with us all the time, that we're not on our own. We don't have to define life on our own. We're part of a community of people who are speaking truth and life to us all the time. And we need that. Because oftentimes we don't know the best for us. Oftentimes we don't know really where life is found we need other voices to speak truth and grace to us again and again, over and over when we're discouraged, when we're uncertain, when we're off the way that we know we ought to go. It fights against the individualism of our culture and frees us to communal living, and that will always give us perspective. That's another thing that's important in our world. 
Over the last couple years, one of our favorite words to say as a culture has been unprecedented, right? Everyone's talking about how unprecedented life is right now, right? It makes us miss precedented times, whatever that means, right? But here's the reality, friends. There are unique contexts and unique things that we're going through, but there have been pandemics before. There's been racial violence before. It's unprecedented in one sense, but it's completely precedented in another sense. And we need the perspective of people who have gone through similar things if we're to navigate it well at all today. We need the communion of the saints. We're not segmented from it, and we're not left to answer everything ourselves. We have voices that have come before us that help us. In the Presbyterian tradition, there's a book of common worship that dates back hundreds of years. Guys, there's stuff in there on racial injustice that is completely prophetic for our time today that was written hundreds of years ago by faithful Christians. I needed that language in the last couple years. I need the examples of the saints that have come before me. Imagine, next week, you're sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. You're leading a crew of people to sail across the Atlantic Ocean. Would you not bring a map with you? Would you just say, ah, we got this, right? Would you not study sailing? I'm assuming that many people in here don't know how to sail. So would you just say, ah, we can wing it and figure it out? No way. That'd be insane. You need a map. You need a compass. You need tools. You need a talented crew around you. You couldn't sail the Atlantic yourself. And if that's true, how much more true about things that are eternally significant? How much more true about the deepest parts of who we are? We need a crew. We need a map. And that map, by the way, doesn't mean that you don't experience the Atlantic Ocean on your own. You do, right? You're going to be on the ocean. You're going to be rocking with the waves. But you will be there with thousands of other voices that have formed that map for you so that you're not alone. That map is yours to navigate the ocean better. The map that the saints have painted for us gives us perspective. So this communion of the saints, it's a, it's a masterpiece of community. It helps us fight individualism, and it gives us perspective in our lives on how we ought to live now. But it's not just a masterpiece of community. It's also a masterpiece of encouragement. This is a crucial thing. Notice the author of Hebrews, immediately after describing this cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 12 here, he says that because that's true, we now run the race that's set before us. Run the race. Many commentators think that he's probably referring to uh, the Greco-Roman tradition of of Olympic running, uh, which many of you may know. They stripped off everything they could everything they could. They ran naked much of the time because they knew that any hindrance would keep them from running their best. That's why he says, cast off every possible weight. Cast off anything that prevents you from running. And that image actually makes a lot of sense to us as well. We love to run in our culture. Anybody done marathons before in here? No? Half marathons? Okay, nice, a couple, yeah. 5Ks, 10Ks, field days in elementary school, We run races. We know what it's like to run races. But here's what's fascinating. We also know that we don't ever run by ourselves. You go to a marathon, and there's the runners. They're pumping their arms and legs and doing their thing, but there are people waiting to give them water along the way. There are people that make T-shirts with their names and hold up signs encouraging them along the way. There are people at the finish line who are waiting for them to embrace them. We don't run a race alone, friends. We have encouragement all around us. We have people waiting to give us life all around us. We have that in church history, and we have that today. And that means that in your faith race, in your faith run right now, you don't have to navigate any of it alone. You have people who can encourage you in it. Maybe right now, your race of faith is running you into grief, pain over some sort of loss in your life. We have saints 
who can help with that. There's a guy named Henry Nowen who wrote a book called uh, The Wounded Healer. He talks all about how Jesus walks with us in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our grief. We can learn from Henry. He can run with us. He can encourage us. Maybe right now you feel like you're running in your faith with a backpack full of weight, distractions or sins that just keep weighing you down. We have saints that can help with that. There's uh, these men and women. They were called the desert fathers and mothers. They lived thousands of years ago, and they lived at a time when culture had started to dilute the Christian faith, had started to make faith about politics, and had started to make it about other sorts of things. And they were distracted. They weren't really following Jesus in the way that Jesus made them to follow him. And so the desert fathers moved to the middle of the desert to form a new community that faithfully followed Jesus, rid of the distractions. You can read about the desert fathers right now. They wrote down a ton of what they did. It's incredible wisdom for those of us that often find ourselves distracted or pulled away from the life of faith. Powerful messages. If you want a copy, let me know. And I think it's also free online if you want to get it. That's how amazing this community of saints is. Maybe right now in your race of faith, you're going through a period of doubt, dryness, It's not quite as enlivened as you'd like. We have saints who can help with that. There's a guy that we as Christians call John of the Cross. He lived a few hundred years ago. He wrote a a piece called The Dark Night of the Soul, which is an apt description for many of us when we go through a season of doubt. And he describes what it looks like to know Jesus and follow Jesus, even in the middle of doubt and despair. We have saints who have been through it, who surround us now. Maybe right now you're in mental and physical pain some sort of challenging depression or anxiety that you have to carry with you. We have saints who can help you with that. There's a woman named Julian of Norwich. She had an incredible experience on her deathbed, one of the most painful experiences she's ever had. She felt more unified with Jesus then than she ever had, and she writes about her observations. You can learn from Julian. You can learn from her faith. She surrounds us now. You guys, I could keep going all day and all week and all month because there are thousands of years of lives that have been lived that are here to encourage you in your walk. That's what we mean when we say the communion of the saints. They've completed their masterpieces and they're encouraging us to do the same. And it's worth noting that the author of Hebrews here describes how we are to run the race. Not just that we are to run it, but how. You notice he used the word perseverance, which is kind of like saying steadfast endurance for us. He's saying it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's a long race. As Pastor Eugene Peterson would put it, it's a long obedience in the same direction. And that's critical for us. We as Christians are always living in light of the long game, living in light of eternity, which means we aren't affected in the same ways as the world around us. There's a bigger perspective that we carry with us in our faith. See, the world is going to ask about what can temporally satisfy me now, What's the thing that I can get to get me through the day here and now? The Christian will ask, what's the thing that can bring love and grace in the long term? What's the action I can take or the thought I can think or the the thing that I can do to bring love and grace? The world is going to ask how to maximize ourselves, how to elevate ourselves, how to make the most out of ourselves here and now. Christians will ask, how do we give ourselves away? Because true life is found in giving ourselves away. Guys, there's great and needed freedom in knowing that our race is a long one and that we live with an eternal perspective. Guys, every single one of you in this room right now is a body and soul that will live on. Everything you do brings those two things together. Everything you do is moving you more and more close to Jesus or farther and farther away. We have an opportunity to run in the long game, keeping eternity in our minds. 
And that means we can emphasize the right things in the right ways at the right times. We give up trying to control people and just simply love them instead. We give up being swayed by everything that the world out there tells us is urgent. Right? It doesn't mean that those things aren't urgent, but we are governed by what Jesus says is urgent. And what Jesus says is often much more life-giving than anything our world says is urgent. We don't have to do the doom scroll anymore. And what's fascinating is that that sort of counterintuitive life, that slow and patient marathon of faith, is actually what brings us the most eternal life, the most eternal satisfaction. All of us, in one way or another, are longing for eternity in the deepest parts of who we are. That's why we try to maximize the moment. That's why we try to make our lives as put together as they can be. That's why we do everything we can for the here and now, because we want to last forever. But here's a crazy stat. The death rate, it's 100%, y'all. 100%. No one's ever done it. No one's ever made it eternally, except for one, Jesus. And Jesus tells us, this is what eternal life looks like. If you want it, you have to give yourself away. If you want eternal life, it doesn't come from your grasping or your striving or your sprinting. It comes from the marathon of giving yourself away as I have. And that Jesus is guiding us all the time. The saints are pointing us there. It's actually an important thing here. In this final portion of this masterpiece of the communion of the saints, the saints also give us clarity. See, we don't remember the saints or celebrate the saints because of the saints. We celebrate them because they're arrows to Jesus. They point us and give us clarity on Jesus. Abraham, just a dude who lived in the ancient world. A lot of dudes like him, we don't talk about anymore. Why do we talk about Abraham? Because he was faithful to God. That's why. And he's lasted eternally. We're talking about him thousands of years later. Peter, just a fisherman. Lots of fishermen, just like Peter in the ancient world. We don't talk about those fishermen. Why? Because they didn't give themselves away to Christ in the same way. We talk about Peter because he chose to give his life away to follow Jesus. We don't talk about the saints because of them. We talk about them because of Jesus. So, guys, when we're running our race, in our marathons of faith, we're not running to perfect ourselves. We're not running toward great human ingenuity. We're running alongside humans towards Jesus together. That's the goal. The saints aren't saying, hey, get on my level. The saints are saying, I'm with you. Let's go there together. That's what we mean when we talk about this communion of saints, when we talk about this cloud of witnesses. The path to eternal life runs straight through death to self. Jesus mapped that out for us. That's the clarity that we have. And as soon as we die to our own striving, as soon as we die to our own self-righteousness, in every little way in our lives, we find eternal life is waiting for us on the other side. And we have thousands of years of saints to remind us of what that looks like. You guys, every one of you right now is surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, by saints. You wouldn't be in this room if that wasn't true. You wouldn't be curious about Jesus in any way unless some saints had done some things for you. Saints have made you meals. They've invited you into their home. They've grieved with you. They've celebrated with you. You're here because of what saints have done. I stand in front of you because of what saints have done. You don't see them. It's a whole cloud behind me. They've been behind me my whole life, and they have been the example for me of what it means to run after Jesus. Every time I stand here, that cloud stands with me. And I hope that I'm part of some clouds as well. I hope that we all get to be a part of the same thing. And so I want to close our time together this morning by reflecting on our clouds. 
by spending some time reflecting on that. Uh, each of you has some scraps of paper at your chairs and a little pen that's keeping them together. I want you to, to grab those, and I'm going to ask you, I'm going I'm to pray to wrap up our time here, and then we'll enter into communion. But before you come up for communion, I'm going to ask you to write down the names on each of those slips of paper, one of your cloud of witnesses, someone in that cloud, someone that's a, a saint that has come before you, that has given an example to you. And when you come up for communion, I want you to drop it in the basket. And then during our last song, I'm going to read all the names together to remind us that we're not alone in this room, that there is a powerful church history behind us. Friends, masterpieces have been painted that have changed our lives. They're constantly calling out to us, beckoning us, encouraging us, clarifying for us what's important in our lives. And that leaves us with the question, what's our masterpiece going to be? Let's pray, friends. Mm -hmm.